Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Wonderful song to bridge to our message today, which has been titled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Just as the, the old great hymn uh, tells us, God's always there. He's always providing. Every provision that we need is in Him. And as you notice in singing today, in, in, the, in the hymns and the songs that we, that we sing, they are Christ-centered. We are focused on the Savior who bore our sins on the cross at Calvary so that we might be seen righteous before God. And God has given every provision for what we need uh, to have relationship and restoration for Him through His Son. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And the introduction by this writer, presumably King Solomon, in his introduction, he has declared that all of life is, is just vanity. It's meaningless to him. Of course, as we discussed last Sunday, Solomon's assessment is based on what he observes, what he sees. It's a, it's a worldview that fails to account for God who has created all things in the universe. Fails to account for the existence of God. So Solomon is describing his personal observation, what he sees in front of him. His preferred, preferred phrase in this book is, is, under the sun. Now that is inserted repeatedly throughout this book to describe his experience that only accounts for the natural realm, that which you can see, hear, touch, and taste. And therefore, we shouldn't find it at all surprising that Solomon's first argument, his first defense that he gives for the vanity of life or, or the emptiness that he is feeling is through contrasting the brevity of his own life, the shortness of life, or, or any person's life for that matter, uh, comparing that, contrasting that to the perpetuity of the natural realm that goes on and on as we see it under the sun. Solomon... He becomes so disturbed by what he sees, what he sees in nature as he acknowledges his own life serves only as a, as a faint ripple. Kind of like a, a drop of water would make in a pond. He's just a ripple, a single drop of rain in this gigantic pond that we call history. And Solomon is comparing the lifespan of a man, which of course is, on earth is temporal, to that of creation, which uh, appears to us as eternal. Now, now we know actually the opposite is true. Man is eternal. The soul of man will dwell eternally in one place or another, uh, either with God being redeemed through Christ Jesus or in hell suffering uh, for the sins uh, that they committed, either Christ has saved you from your sins and died for your sins on the cross, or you will bear that penalty yourself for eternity. Uh, so we know that man is eternal. We also know that the present heavens and earth are temporal. Peter assures us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that they are being reserved for fire and for destruction at the day of Christ's return. But we know that, we realize that through human conscience and scriptural revelation. Solomon will later say, we'll find this in chapter 3, God has set eternity on the heart of man. We all know that we're going to keep on existing. That's in our heart. But we don't conclude this through the lens of a, of a laboratory microscope. All right? Like many, Solomon is troubled by what he scientifically observes under the sun, and it annoys him. I'm going to begin by reading in verse 3. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in verse 3. This frames how Solomon is thinking right now. 
he asks, what advantage does man have in all of his work, work or toil, your translation might read, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it, or man is not able to express how wearisome it is. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which it will be, and that which is done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there any, anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Solomon has a problem. It arises out of his introduction in verses 1 and 2. Solomon wants to view himself as a somebody. He wants to be a somebody. He says in verse 1, I am... Son of David, I am king in Jerusalem. For a short time on earth, he, he is somebody great, somebody powerful. Yet considering even all of his accomplishments, accomplishments in life, and there are many, as, as we proceed through this book, I'm going to unfurl his resume on a later date. Yet to him, now it's all meaningless. All meaningless. Looking around himself, Solomon recognizes that man cannot perpetuate his existence as nature seems to do. And he desperately wants to be remembered. You know, that that is people's greatest fear, many people's greatest fear anyhow. Will I be forgotten after I am gone? You ever worried about that? Will I be forgotten after I'm gone? Well, the reality is, you will. You will. Under the sun, people come and people go. Like it or not, they're going to quickly be forgotten. You know, the fear of being forgotten has fueled a whole industry of tracing ancestry. Uh, You've Surely heard of Ancestry.com, which, which helps you to exhume, I guess, long dead relatives, bring them back again. Uh, there are exceptions, uh, surely, but the primary motive of many people is not really a personal interest in that long-lost, long-past grandmother. Uh, rather, it's, it's an inner longing. It is, it's a yearning to be remembered as part of an enduring legacy Something that lasts beyond them. Something that perpetually survives after they're gone. Their marketing scheme, it's clever, and it exploits this motive. There's one television commercial that I find memorable. I imagine you have seen it. Uh, It portrays a female lawyer. And uh, she discovers that her grandfather had a law degree down in Guatemala. He was a judge. And she declares proudly the end of the commercial, that made me realize where I got my passion for social justice. Like everything in this generation that we look around us today, everything's about me. Everybody thinks they're the center of the universe. Uh, um, That mindset is not obsessed with preserving a memory of someone long ago whom we never actually met or knew what they were like. They might have been an awful person to be around. We don't know. It arises out of a a yearning to be part of something that endures. 
because the human heart knows that it lasts. Our, our soul lasts. Uh, uh, we want to endure. We want a legacy to endure ourselves. Uh, most people want to be remembered. Ancestry.com, their marketing is effective. It, it is effective. People buy it. But a heritage itself does not offer satisfaction. You, you couldn't have a more enduring legacy than the royal Davidic honor of being king in Jerusalem. Doesn't get any fancier than that. But searching for life's meaning and tracing lineage, it's vain. It's empty. Even for someone as great as Solomon. Besides, do you know what most people find out as they give their money to Ancestry.com and they go for a search for their relatives, you know what they normally find out? Nothing. Nothing. Their information doesn't usually exist. Um, I know with my, uh, with my great-grandfather, who's named John Paul, by the way, uh, came from Denmark. He was a farrier over there. Uh, well, blacksmith. They did all kinds of metal work and other things and uh, immigrated to the U.S. And we just know that from being passed down in the family. You know how that goes. But I had a family member that, that attempted to trace that back when he came in through through New York and everything to immigrate, they couldn't find nothing. There's no document. You know, it's, it's, they come in on, by a birth certificate or some other way. Those things aren't all on the internet. You can't just pull that out of nowhere. The documents have been lost. Nobody really knows. No one can really affirm. Uh, this is one reason, by the way, that AncestryDNA.com is now the rage. So, so even if you can't find the names of long-lost relatives, people can find a likely country of origin. That way you can identify with a heritage. Now, I, I realize that a DNA test can have certain medical benefits. It truly can. Uh, actually, I think it's scanning for genes is what they're doing there. But the popular marketing approach by Ancestry.com is, determine whether, is to determine whether you should be wearing a kilt. <laughs> Gerald, are you Scottish? No, you would look good in a kilt. Um, everybody wants to identify with a heritage, don't they? Well, Solomon was a key figure in an enduring legacy. He was, verse 1, son of David, king in Jerusalem. You know who that first verse of Ecclesiastes is supposed to point us to, Right? Son of David, king in Jerusalem. We, we know immediately who that points at. So did Israel. So did Solomon. He should have known. In fact, preserving genealogy under the Davidic covenant. That is a promise that God made to King David uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Genealogies were vital Because all of Israel knew that there was going to be a descendant of David that would come eventually, the Christ, the Messiah. He would be of David's offspring. He he would be a royal descendant or a son of David whose reign God would establish forever. That was the promise that God made to Solomon's daddy. Okay, Solomon knew this. But Solomon cries. A generation goes and a generation comes and what will I have left from my toil? Who will remember me? You know, think about that. Whose legacy is Solomon striving to preserve? Who is he worried about being remembered? You know, his whole life, he, he's invested in a hope that that future generations will remember him. No wonder Solomon has become so depressed. It's because he knows people won't. People won't remember who you were. Whose legacy, whose legacy should he have really been worried about preserving? The Messiah, 
that is to come, the promised one, the holy one of God. Clearly, the king who is to come and to rule forevermore. Solomon, sadly, he wasted most of his strength hoping to make himself memorable in many different ways. The the legacy of Solomon, by the way, is pretty well known. What he did is pretty well recorded. He started off pretty well. He asked God for wisdom in order to guide God's people. He, he built a very grand temple in which God would be able to dwell and people would be able to worship. But he quickly shipwrecked. Quickly shipwrecked. And in defiance of God's law, this is just one of many things, Solomon multiplied wives. That's a prohibition in the Word of God, Deuteronomy 17. He invested his, his toil, all of his work, pursuing pleasures for life. He had the finest clothes. He had massive vineyards, horses, chariots, mansions, none of which endure to this day, by the way. None of them survive. Solomon devoted his life to well, promoting the wrong king's legacy. It wasn't supposed to be about Solomon. It's supposed to be about the one who is to come. And now, probably in the last years of his life, this is in the latter stages, we can tell by all the accomplishments he lists throughout the rest of the book, that this is late in Solomon's life. He's looking back at everything that was done. And in the rearview mirror, he's looking, he's miserable with what he has invested his life in. And he's thinking to himself, you know, what did I do with my 30s and, and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s? And Solomon wants to vomit because he did virtually everything through those years, through his life, uh, to preserve fleeting ventures, ventures that would be here for a short season. He ruled for about 40 years from 970 to 931 B.C. He invested it all in fleeting ventures, things that would not last when the Messiah came. Now he sees he's in life. He realizes he was a faint ripple in time and his generation is quickly passing by. In verse 4, he goes, A generation goes and a generation comes. And nobody's going to remember the magnificent vineyards and the beautiful wives that he had. Nobody's even going to remember what they looked like. Nobody's going to remember. Vanity, he says. It, it, you know, it, it makes me sad. It does. It makes me sad for Solomon. It, it, it really does. Because what is left from his endeavors today, you know, what is left over from all of his toil is discovered in in the screen of an archaeologist's dig. You know the one where they shake and they they find a piece of pottery in there, broken pottery, and they they pick it out and they look at it and they try to determine where it came from. And Solomon knows that he's just going to be part of a dig. Those archaeologists, they pull something out and they say, Joe, what do you think that is? Joe goes, I don't know. It looks like, a, looks like part of a taillight from a 69 Charger. And Joe yells, like, man, that was a great car. Great. Who do you think it belonged to? Haven't got a clue. Out it goes with the dust heap of life. It's sad. Of all that Solomon built, his earthly endeavors, nothing survives to this day. You know, if there's anybody who achieved many grand projects as a king, if anybody would have possibly had a little bit left over, if it were possible to have even just a little bit left over in the end, it would have been Solomon. It would have been Solomon. But he asks in verse 3, you know, what advantage... Does a man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? The Hebrew term there for advantage is profit. Your translation might say profit there. Uh, it, it was used to describe the margin left over 
after all expenses were paid in a business transaction, all right, the, is, is the profit margin, is what Solomon is saying. When it's all done, what am I going to have left over? Think about that. When you die, what are you going to have left? What are you going to take with you? Nothing at all. Nothing in this life. Oh boy, Solomon becomes a, just the, the premier illustration of the Bible for you can't take it with you. You can't. King Tut tried. It's still here. All that gold, it's still here. It's still here. And in a later chapter, Solomon's going to lament that he, he will have to leave it all to another man who may end up being a fool. That'll come in a later chapter. Boy, that turned out to be prophetic, doesn't it? He does. His son becomes a fool. And worse for Solomon... You know, not only does he have to leave this profit margin, everything gets left behind, but once his generation goes and the next one comes, this is what really gets him right here. Verse 11, the end of this passage. Verse 11 says, In the end, there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. The ones who come even later. You know, eventually there arises a generation that doesn't remember anything about you. Oh, oh, this too is vanity, Solomon declares. What is it that he's concerned they won't remember? Think about that for a second. What is he concerned here in this passage they will not remember? Is it, it, is, is it his great works? All the wonderful things that he, that he built, constructed, and did. It's interesting... In this Hebrew that Solomon uses in verse 11, his reference to earlier things and later things, it appears to us in the English to, to indicate uh, things that he did, indicate material things, achievements in his life. Reading it initially, we would conclude that Solomon mourns how none will remember the things that he has built. No one will remember the vineyard's or the homes, that may be partially true. However, material things aren't necessarily implied by these Hebrew words uh, earlier and later. My most precise language commentary confirms this. It says, both earlier and later, both of these words, they're written in the masculine form. And, and, in the, and it says... Hence, this is, it's, they're quite, um, quite firm about this in this commentary. This can, this, these words can properly designate human beings rather than things. You follow me? The earlier things and latter things. It seems to be acknowledging people rather than things. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates verse 11 as follows. It says, there is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will be no remembrance by those who follow them. So it seems to suggest that Solomon isn't concerned that the future generations won't remember the stuff that he did. He's lamenting how they're not going to remember him, the person himself. In context, people is probably the best interpretation here. Because both verses 4 and 11, they kind of sandwich this, this passage we're in. They, they function as bookends here. It says in verse 4, one generation goes and another generation comes. What's he talking about there? It's people. And in verse 11, there will be no remembrance of the people who came earlier. Also those, the people who will come later. There will be no remembrance of among people uh, who will come later still. That, that's what makes him... That's what makes Solomon sick. Solomon says, no matter what I build, no matter what I achieve, no matter how much is left remaining after I'm gone, you know, history may write about the things that I did, but nobody's going to remember me. No one's going to remember my laugh. No one's going to remember what my smile looked like. No one's going to remember Solomon. You know, it's pre- it is. It's pretty sad when one of the most really significant figures 
in all of history, not just biblical history, in all of history, realizes his 40-year reign is just another blip on the radar. Here today, gone tomorrow. And, and this describes the best-case scenario for a king who in his day was far more famous and successful than any of us who will read Ecclesiastes today. Far more successful. Doesn't matter how rich or famous you strive to become, you will be forgotten. Drives the celebrities out in Hollywood mad, folks. Yeah, it does. They're crazy to be remembered. Everything they achieve and strive to do is that they will leave something on the map. Hmm. I have a quote from a theologian named Douglas O'Donnell. He writes in the Reformed Expositor's Expositor's Commentary, try to to measure your own potential, all right? Each of us here. I'll do it for myself, you do it for yourself. Try to measure your own potential to leave a mark in comparison to his observation of these key historical figures. All right, quote, While every generation might remember the work of David... Isaiah, or Paul, as well as Aristotle, Shakespeare, and Mozart, how will other famous people fare? For example, he says, what about Elvis Presley, Muhammad Ali, John F. Kennedy, and Walt Disney? These men made a recent list of the top ten most famous people of all time. How well will they be remembered a century from now? Or consider John Lennon, who said that he and his band were more popular than Jesus. In 1966, at the height of Beatlemania, Lennon made this prediction. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that, says Lennon. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. O'Donnell continues by writing, Well, John, I can tell you which will go first. (laughs) Imagine there's no Beatles. It's easy if you try. (laughs) Just ask children today to name the Fab Four. Just name them. With two of these superstars still alive and touring, coming to a city near you, there should be no excuse if our 6, 12, or 18-year-olds don't know the name of the Beatles but they probably don't. Or if they do, just wait a few years, maybe 20, maybe 120, as soon as the memory, uh, and soon the memory of even the Beatles will be as dead and buried as John and George. Unquote. Hmm. Isn't going to survive. I actually recently have watched some old videos of uh, Elvis. It was pretty impressive, really. Uh, Nothing to take away from him, but I look at him now and I'm just, well, that's old stuff. It's just fading. It's fading away as great, as, as great of a performer as he was. Think about this. You and I are each just one of about 8 billion people living on the planet today. One of about 8 billion. Do you imagine anybody's actually going to remember you? Even if you try? You know, perhaps they will if you build a fenced estate. Name it after yourself. Perhaps, you know, if you get one of those arched wrought iron gates. We see a lot of them in Texas, don't we? And, and put your last name in it as you enter into your estate. Do you think anybody's going to remember after you're gone? Or are they going to tear it down and put their name up in it after they buy the property? I think I know what's going to happen. Some try harder than that. They'll build a wing for a hospital or add on to a church in the hopes that they'll perhaps get their name remembered on a wall somewhere, maybe their memory engraved in a nice plaque and hung on a wall. Folks, what will that make people remember? No, Scripture says you're just a vapor. You're here for a little while and then you're gone. That lament of Solomon, he finds this very troublesome, assures that no legacy that you or I build 
It's not going to stand the test of time. Don't even try. Right? Don't even try. Though Solomon is bothered by this, we shouldn't be. But he, having perceived that he squandered the duration of his life on things that were temporal, now he looks in what he sees in nature. He views it with contempt. He looks around at nature, his environment. He views it with contempt because it endures. This is how far he has fallen, folks. Look with me at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and then the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing towards the south, then turning towards the north. The wind continues swirling along. And on its circular course, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, says Solomon. Man is not able to even express it. He's wore out by it. Folks, observing nature itself doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. As I told our home group last Wednesday night, I went to see the Grand Canyon when I was a bachelor. Boy, it was astonishing. It was absolutely amazing. After I got married... I went again to impress my wife. It rather looked the same. That was a close call. That was a close call right there. But it rather looked the same. I haven't visited since, but I imagine it's still there. And as impressive as it is, I know what the Grand Canyon looks like, and I never need to go again. I know what it looks like. Do you know what else I know what it looks like, and I never need to see it again? Snow. Snow. Never need to see it again. If I want to see what snow feels and looks like, I just stick my head in a freezer and close the door. That's the truth. Don't need to see snow again. No, folks, I honestly think you should seize opportunities to, to look at the marvelous wonders of creation. If, if you have that opportunity to do so, there are some natural wonders that amaze. If you don't get those opportunities, that too is fine. That's fine. It, it's not essential for sanctification. In fact, most cultures and most peoples throughout history never had the freedom, the liberty, the passport, or the money in order to go see the wonders of the world by traveling afar. But what God has created is amazing. But I don't believe Solomon here is contemplating these greatest marvels of creation. The Amazon, the Grand Canyon, the White Cliffs of Dover those things that only a handful of people throughout history have ever seen. Uh, he's, he's contemplating the perpetual everyday cycle of nature. It never ends. It never ends. And every one of us, no matter where you live, has an opportunity to see that. Everybody can see nature and see that it never ends, no matter where you live. No matter where you live. And what should we do? What should nature do? You know, the sun is shining, the wind is blowing, the rivers are flowing. What should our response be? I can assure you Solomon's reaction is wrong. He shows what fixating on your own legacy will do. It's a self-centered existence that turns your heart away from God. Focusing on your own legacy. He can't even see the meaning in creation because this dwelling on himself and and leaving his own mark has robbed Solomon of his ability to worship God. It's all about him. It's not like the hymns and the songs that we have sung praising God and praising Jesus. Solomon's all worried about who's going to remember me. And, And that is such a selfish and egotistical state that he remains focused on what kind of ripple he's going to make in the world. That, folks, has impeded his worship. I believe that he is bitter. He's bitter because he, he now observes his, his own aging and failing body. He's getting old. In, in relation to the earth, 
That seems to remain unchanging forever, but his body doesn't. Anybody notice that in here? Don't raise your hand. The body changes. He's soon to expire, and the earth never does. And writing near, near the end of his life, possibly from a wheelchair at this point, Solomon already senses his own legacy that he spent all that time building is slipping away. It's slipping away, an inch at a time. It's slipping away. And he's so focused on self that Solomon doesn't lift his eyes to worship. We realize the sun, wind, and the rain should, with a spiritual mindset, as we see it, it should provoke a different reaction from people. Solomon should respond to creation the way his daddy did, King David. But what has gotten between Solomon and God is Solomon. His self-image, his self-worth, his self-realization, his his self-preservation. Because Solomon has has swallowed the world's lie, the, the the lie that the world preaches, about how life finds meaning in discovering the potential in your own self. Everything's about self. This culture today calls it self-actualization. Your whole goal in life, they say, ought to be discovering the enormous potential in yourself. Why Solomon would say, that's such a lie. Such a lie. Lived it for decades, he said, and it's a lie. But that's what the world preaches. It's no wonder we live in a generation that is so clinically depressed. Because they think they're supposed to leave a mark. And if they're like me, I look back and it's not even a ripple. Not even a ripple. Therapists say, you are somebody. You've got to find yourself. That's not what the Bible says. As a part of our scripture reading, the psalmist King David, is Solomon's own father now, said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And everything David sees, God has a purpose there. The sun to him is not meaningless, nor monotonous, nor wearisome. David celebrates the sun. He calls it, uh, it's a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Nothing's hidden from its heat. That's how David sees the created order by God. Uh, To him, of course David was a man after God's own heart. Creation is God's magnificent handiwork. It's wonderful. It declares the glory of God. It explains all of God's goodness to man. It's for this reason that Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says that man is left without excuse. Every man is left without excuse. For that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Do you see it? Do you see the goodness that Solomon can't even sense? Completely overlooks it. So what we observe in nature... It's not evidence of futility. It's not meaningless. It's not empty. What we observe is God's glory and His kindness to us. Uh, Rather than vanity, everything Solomon sees in nature should provoke him to worship God. Every day, the sun rises. It warms our skin. This same sun melts the snow to form rivers. It also causes the green plant to grow and to bear its fruit that we might eat. Every single day, without fail, the sun rises. 
Boy, great is God's faithfulness. The second example Solomon laments is the wind. But we know the wind fills the sails of the ships. The wind runs its course. It circles back again. It's never exhausted. It never runs out. It's it's always there. Merchants study the currents so that they can deliver their their wares according to the seasons. And nature is predictable. God has made it that way. In the spring, the wind dries the ground so the farmers can plant their crops. The rivers flow to the sea, but due to evaporation, the sea never gets full. Some rivers form in the mountains. Others start with rain. Some are fed by springs or other pressures from aquifers within the earth. But the sources of the rivers never run out. Isn't that amazing? Great is God's faithfulness. The Apostle Paul told the people of Lystra that God did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And this same natural cycle that Solomon concluded is wearisome, folks, it is evidence of an ecosystem that God has designed for our every need. It's always there. It preserves life. And the reason that the earth remains is for our benefit. It's for our benefit. So the sun keeps shining, the grass keeps growing, the rivers keep flowing, the birds keep singing, the fish keep swimming, the cows keep mooing. Because God has provided every single day for our good. Great is God's faithfulness. And what shall we do in return? Revelation 4 verse 11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they, were, they existed and were created. It's called worship, Solomon. That is what you're missing. You're missing worship. Maybe it's time... For old Solomon to get over his sinful self and forget about the legacy that you hope to leave and leave it all behind. You might be a king, but you're sure not the creator of the universe. What has gotten between God and Solomon? Solomon. Yeah. Because Solomon failed to remember that he was only supposed to be keeping David's throne warm for somebody else. The other one who was to come, a future son of David, a future king in Jerusalem who would be the Christ. For God promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be a father to him, this is the Christ, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, speaking of the cross there, he was accounted for our sin. Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but as if he committed iniquity. God says, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever Your throne shall be established forever. That is the promise of the Davidic covenant. I said Solomon is just supposed to keep the seat warm. And Israel was supposed to have faith in God's promise of a kingdom to come. Solomon didn't know what this king's name would be yet, but he knew he would come. And Solomon took his focus off of who would be Jesus 
And he maintained it on himself. Kept it all on himself. He spent 40 years as king, building a kingdom of his own that would crumble shortly after he died. Boy, that is sad. That is sad. This is why life became so meaningless to him. He's building the wrong kingdom. And this is what Solomon observed in nature. You know, the average person has about 70 to 90 years, you know, give or take. Some more, some less. Well, the universe has been around, we know, for about 6,000 years. Time of Solomon, about 4,000, maybe a little more. And for God's sovereign purpose, He inserts you and your lifespan, whatever lifespan that may be, into the sphere of human history for a time. God places you in history for a time. The earth and all creation, that will continue until Christ's return. But like Solomon, it's possible that you and I won't. And somewhere within your 70 to 90 years, after that point that you become a Christian, whenever you have trusted in Christ that He died for your sins and rose from the dead, some point in that time, you're going to make a choice. And you're going to decide... Who am I going to serve the remainder of my years? Whose kingdom will I build? Whose legacy shall I leave? One that centers around my own legacy? Or one that reminds people that there is a king still to come? And when you look back over your life, when you get to your latter years, Which kingdom is going to endure? Think about that. Whose is going to endure? So which one are you going to build? Folks, every person here has at least a little time left. But at least there's time. When will Christ return? I I don't know. But we, like Solomon, each of us has an expiration date. You will not be remembered. I will not be remembered. But Christ will be remembered every single time that His church lifts up the bread and the cup. Christ shall be remembered. This would have been a great Sunday for the Lord's Supper, huh? No, it's too late. Because the next generation of Christians whom you reach with the gospel, they will declare that God is good. They will declare that Christ is coming again. They will remember Him even when they don't remember you. Solomon found his life was meaningless because it was consumed building the wrong kingdom. Folks, I'm pretty confident. I am. I'm pretty confident that Christ will return soon. Uh, This is because Jesus in Scripture Himself says that I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what is due. He's promised He's coming quickly. But we can't be sure when. Peter writes, you know, with with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, just ind- indicates that the period that we're, that we're in to wait for Christ's sudden return, it's, it's indefinite, but it is brief. It is brief. And Christ's delay shall not cause us who belong to Him to grow weary. We won't. We know for every provision God gives, whether nature or the forgiveness of sins offered through the cross, the King's delay is a blessing for our good every single day. For Peter says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is why we are still here. So we'll regard, regard this patience of our Lord, that some count meaningless, 
as salvation. It is salvation. How are you going to use your blip, folks? How big is it? You've got a blip. How are you going to use it, that time that you have remaining? You're going to build something pretty to be remembered by or build a legacy that will endure until Jesus comes through his church. They will remember him. Determine if what is standing between you and God is you. Am I concerned whether people are going to remember me? Only you can answer that question for yourself. (laughs) Oh, I'm not. And they surely will not. Scripture is very clear. Nobody's going to remember me. The Word of God is certain on this. I don't need a plaque. I don't need anything. It's not about me. Each of us should be saying that it's not about me. I'm concerned for whatever work that I leave behind that people will remember Jesus that they will celebrate Him in the bread and the cup every one of their days, and that they'll be watching for the day of the Lord when Jesus shall return. Folks, great is God's faithfulness. Invest wisely. Let's pray. Father, all Your goodness to see uh, the fruit of the fields, the water that you provide, the sweetness of life. Lord, help us not to lose sight of that. By your Spirit, help us to rise each day uh, counting the blessings that you've given us every single day that we're here. Lord, let us not grow weary. Strengthen us in your Spirit. Lord, use us for your kingdom every single day until your return. Great is God's faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.